You're listening to Grace Seal Beach Sermons. If you'd like to know more about our church, go to gracesealbeach.org. Well, if you brought a Bible with you or you've got it on your phone, feel free to open up to Acts chapter 10, where we're going to be today as we continue our series on unity in the book of Acts. Today, we're going to talk about Peter and Cornelius and a change that needed to happen in Peter's heart for the unity of the church to extend not just to people who are ethnically Jewish or similarly Samaritan, but as well as to the Gentiles uh, and to the ends of the earth. You guys might remember we said that Acts has this theme verse where Jesus tells the apostles, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Today we come to chapter 10 where it's that pivot point where it goes from just being a gospel for Jewish people and and for their sort of cousins, the Samaritans, to now to the remotest parts of the earth, the the Gentiles. And for that to happen, Luke says, a change is going to have to happen in Peter's heart and how he sees people different than himself. He's going to have to really wrestle with these questions of race and racism and prejudice and what it means to reach out to people who are different than him. And as Peter summarizes what we're going to talk about today in verse 28, he says, God has shown me that I should not call any person common or unclean. Instead, Peter's going to see that the Holy Spirit, that that God's presence can dwell not just in a temple or in a, a holy place, but in a people, and not just ethnically Jewish people, but but people that to him seemed incredibly unclean and unworthy. And the Gentiles who believe in Jesus are going to experience the same indwelling of the Holy Spirit as Peter himself had, and as the temple in the Old Testament had. Now, um, on the surface, this seems like sort of an ancient question, Jews and Gentiles, what it means for the Spirit of God to dwell in, in that situation, seems kind of removed from our experience of life. Most of us in here, I imagine, are Gentiles, and so we're grateful that that God cares about us and and grafts us in, but uh, it's not really a question we've wrestled with, whether Gentiles are acceptable to God. That kind of just seems intuitive to us. But these issues of Peter's heart are timeless ones of how do we see people that are different than us? Do we see them as unclean? Do we see them as unworthy or less than us? And, And I wish I could say, Man, Peter's so weird for wrestling with that. Glad we've never had any problems with race in our country. Um, (laughs) Yeah, nervous laughter. You know where I'm going, right? This question of clean and unclean has been one that has wrecked our national experience, right? You don't have to go very far back in our history to think, to to see examples of laws that were on the books in my parents' lifetime uh, about uh, whether people could bathe in the same swimming pools of different races, drink from the same water fountains, attend the same schools, or marry people of different races. And what was the argument that was often used? It was the same language of clean and unclean. If only they would read their Bibles, right? Uh, They will defile us, right? Whoever they are and whoever us are. We don't want to mix our blood with them. That will make us unclean or unworthy. And I wish I could say, oh, that was just people in the South during the or people over there, but it's been a consistent problem in American history. Language of clean and unclean described how people talked about Irish and Italian immigrants in the 19th century. It described how people talked about Chinese immigrants uh, in, here in California. It described in my own upbringing in Salinas how people talked about Mexican immigrants in my own community. Right? This is a problem that has faced us, and we could go on and on about Native American people groups and, and, and on throughout our American history. Why do I bring this up? I imagine some of you are like, yeah, why do you bring this up? I didn't come to church to feel guilty. Um, 
I mean, come on, it is church. You come to feel a little guilty, right? Uh, <laughs> more nervous laughter. All right. Um, why am I bringing this up? Well, one reason. The Bible's message consistently is that we are wise to remember and fools to forget. You're going to be hard-pressed to find many passages in the, in the Bible that say, hey, what's best is for you to forget your history. Just ignore that. There are a few times the Bible tells us to forget about things, but for the most part, the Bible's consistent message is wise people remember the errors of their fathers and mothers, right? And they learn from them. And we would be wise people to learn from the errors of our own national history. Secondly, the other reason I bring it up is because if we don't talk about it here, people who object to our faith are going to talk about it out there. They're going to talk about it on TikTok. They're going to talk about it on Instagram. They're going to talk about it online. And they're going to say, hey, you're saying people called them clean. What you're not saying is, it was Protestants who called the Catholic Irish immigrants dirty, right? It was, it was people who claimed the name of Jesus who put those Native American peoples in, in, um, in forced mission environments. It was uh, Baptist preachers and Southern Baptist preachers who got up and called about, talked about the curse of Ham and saying that Africans were made for slavery and this was their destiny from God, right? It, it, this is not divorced from the history of our faith in America, well, my hope in this message is that we look, as we look at the scriptures, we see that I'm not trying to ignore the past, deny the past, say it's not there, but to say what scripture itself teaches as we look at it together today is that racism comes as a problem of the human heart, yes, but the answer to it is the gospel of Jesus Christ. The gospel is not a part of the problem, but that we should expect even religious leaders as important and profound as Peter to have problems of racism which means that those of us who follow in his footsteps should expect to struggle with the same problems. Now, I don't like that. I don't want to think that I have problems with race. I would like to think that I, I am thoughtful and above that and past that or whatever, but I'm not. And neither is Peter and neither, neither are us. And so we're going to talk about that today. So uh, this passage is really long. It's 66 verses, and it's repeated three times in chapters 10 and 11. And so we're going to jump around a little bit. Uh, Luke does this a few times in Acts, where he tells a story, and then he has a character retell the story, and then he has the character retell the story again. It's one of Luke's uh, conventions in Acts for telling us, this is really important. You really need to pay attention to this. But because he retells the story three times, we're going to jump around a little bit between chapters 10 and 11 uh, to highlight the verses that are most helpful for you in understanding the passage and sort of give the sermon one coherent whole. That said, we're not going to read all 66 verses during the sermon. That would be profitable, but I'll, I'll leave that to you to do on your own uh, this afternoon or sometime this week. Um, we're going to really divide this message into three parts. Peter's vision first. We'll talk about that part first. Then we'll talk about Cornelius' vision and talk about who Cornelius is. And then we'll talk about how this impacted the local church at the end. So let's jump into chapter 11 first, actually. Peter is retelling his vision and dream to some other people later on, and this is how he summarizes what happened from his perspective. Uh, chapter 11, verse 5. I was in the city of Joppa praying, and in a trance I saw a vision, something like a great sheet descending, being let down from heaven by its four corners, and it came down to me. Looking at it closely, I observed animals and beasts of prey and reptiles and birds of the air, and I heard a voice saying to me, rise, Peter, kill and eat. But I said, by no means, Lord, for nothing common or unclean has ever entered my mouth. But the voice answered a second time from heaven, what God has made clean, do not call common. All right, so what's surprising about Peter's vision? 
Now, on the surface, we read this and we think, oh, this is about that stuff in the Old Testament about kosher food laws, right? This must be the time when Christians said, okay, because Peter had this vision, bacon cheeseburgers, shrimp scampi, pepperoni pizza, all on the menu now, right? First of all, if that's on the menu, mix in some vegetables. But um, <laughs> this is not the passage why Christians don't keep the food laws. Now, I don't keep the food laws. Probably most of you don't keep the food laws, but it's for other reasons. It's, it's not because of this passage. It's because Christ is the fulfillment of the law. It's because Jesus himself in Mark 9 said, what comes out of a man defiles him rather than what goes into the man. And Mark says, and in saying these things, Jesus declared all foods to be clean. Peter already knows that. He already knows that. So why is he having this vision or this trance about food laws, a, a trance that continues three times? Peter doesn't really know at first. Look at in chapter 10, verse 17. It says, Peter was inwardly perplexed as to what this vision he had seen might mean. So whatever the vision means is not immediately clear, and it's not just about food. So why is it? Why does he have this vision? Peter thinks about it, and he reflects on it, and almost immediately the answer comes in the form of people. This is not a vision about food laws, but about people. And who is clean and unclean. Before we get to those people, I just wanted to find these terms really quickly because most of us aren't super familiar with how the Old Testament law talks about clean and unclean. And so this, this was really helpful for me this week. Maybe it'll be helpful for you. This is an oversimplification of Leviticus, but basically items, people, and nations could exist in one of five uh, states. On the, one for, on the one extreme is holy. Holy are things that are made exclusively for worship. The Levites were holy. A Nazarite was holy. Uh, a certain objects for worship were holy. And then obviously the temple and the holy of holies was the most holy place. So if something was declared holy, it was used exclusively for worship to God. Next to holy is its inverse, which is defiled or desecrated. It was something that had intended to be holy and something had caused it no longer to be able to fulfill that purpose. Okay, so that's, that's one group of categories. The other categories were pure, which was something that is eligible to come to worship and had fulfilled the requirements to come to worship. So that could be a person, that could be an animal for sacrifice. It was something that was pure. Um, next to it was something that was common. That's something that could be pure, but hadn't fulfilled those requirements. So a person who was ceremonially unclean, uh, an animal that had not uh, been fit for offer on the sacrifice, stuff like that. And then the last of the five categories was unclean, or some translations will say profane. That is something by its very nature cannot come into the presence of God. So this would be like, like trying to sacrifice a pig on the altar or a Gentile, right? This is ceremonially unclean, never eligible to be a place with God. So you get those, those categories. If you say, Bob, I don't care. I don't care. <laughs> All I'm thinking about is bacon cheeseburgers. No, I don't care. Um, uh, that's fine. We'll, we'll come back to it. Uh, my point in sharing those categories with you is to say, when Peter sees this vision, as he's looking through it, he's thinking through these categories of clean and unclean in relation to food, and God wants him to apply them to people. Look at verse, uh, chapter 11, verse 11. Behold, that very moment, three men arrived at the house in which we were, sent to me from Caesarea. And the Spirit told me to go with them, making no distinction these six brothers also accompanied me, and we entered into the man's house. Peter realizes pretty quickly, this vision he's had is not about the foods he eats and about what is clean or common or pure, 
but about people and how he sees people and who, is, who God cares about and who God intends for him to reach out to. And so Peter invites these people into his home and he says later in chapter 10, verse 28, reflecting on what happened, he says, God has shown me that I should not call any person common or unclean. There are no people that God is disinterested in. There are no unclean people groups, Peter realizes. This is a lesson that we need to continue to learn today and this connects with our lives, right? There are no people that will infect us, that will make us impure. There are no people that are outside of God's care or God's concern. There are no people as individuals or as groups that God is disappointed in or disinterested in. There are no unclean people. This is the true expression of your faith and you can be proud of that, right? As we talked about the history of racism in America, the history of racism in the Christian church, there's a lot that is discouraging to us. But as we look at what scripture teaches, there's a lot that we aspire to and that we hope in and that our church hopes to be uh, a representation of. Uh, You know, again, I think we sometimes um, act as if racism is is a problem of just a few people at a distant point in the past that doesn't affect us. And why I find this passage so profound is that Peter is struggling with it Again, right? This is the same Peter who had just been to the Samaritans and been like, wow, right? The Samaritans are receiving the, the people of God. And then he, the reality of his heart comes up again here in chapter 10. In chapter 10, he realized, oh, God has shown me even the Gentiles, right? And let's give Peter credit. Good reminder to pray for the kids upstairs. Um, <laughs> if you're new here, our kids' ministry is upstairs. And every time they bang on the ceiling, it's a reminder for us to, to thank God for them and to pray for them. Um, it's significant to me that Peter is having this vision of all people, right? That he is the one who has walked with Jesus, who has been on the Mount of Transfiguration, has, has seen so much of God's heart, uh, has seen so much of God's grace. And this is still a growth area for him. To me, that's really freeing that it's a growth area for me and for us as well. There's nothing that God reveals to Peter here that he hasn't already revealed in his description of humanity as being made in the image of God or Abraham being described as a light to the nations or that Jonah was told that he cared about the souls of the Ninevites, or really everything Jesus said and did. There's no new theology revealed in this vision, but it's all about Peter's heart and about Peter's need to repent and have a different view of the people who are different than him. It's not like Jesus didn't mean it in the Great Commission or uh, in his mandate to be a witness to the nations before, but Peter didn't realize the errors in his ways. And I, I wish I could say, man, Peter's so messed up. I'm glad we've got it all together. But we see in Peter a mirror for our own souls, an area of reflection for our own growth. And we see how much it takes for Peter to overcome that. In fact, God will speak to Peter four different ways this passage. It's a, really an interesting study on, on God's voice, and it would be an interesting sermon to talk about this passage from that lens another time. But John Stott said it took four successive blows of divine revelation before his racial and religious prejudice was overcome. I like that, the the four successive divine hammer blows that it took to break down the walls of Peter's prejudice. And he builds them back up again, if you know Peter's story, right? If you know Peter's story, later he'll be in Galatia and he'll be uh, eating at at a combined table of Jews and Gentiles for a while and then peer pressure will get to him and he'll be like, Uh, I'm going to fall into my own ways, go back to being just a little racist, right? A little little racist. Um, This is a growth area for Peter and for us as well. 
Peter's vision doesn't occur in the abstract about unclean people in theory, though. It's really just about one person in particular, Cornelius and the people around him. So who's Cornelius? He's described at the beginning of chapter 10 as a centurion in what's known as the Italian cohort, an officer in the Roman Empire's army. Now, for those of us who are Americans, this, we probably have generally positive views of people in the military and, and maybe officers in particular, and we think, oh, that seems like a good guy. That is not how Luke's original Jewish readers would have read this or how Peter would have read this. This would be like saying, um, there was a guy in the Taliban who was praying to God. And you'd be like, wait, no, no. So read, that, read these next verses in that light. Uh, Acts 10.1. At Caesarea, there was a man named Cornelius, a centurion of what was known as the Italian cohort, a devout man who feared God with all his household, gave alms generously to the people, and prayed continually to God. This picture of Cornelius we have is amazingly positive, provocatively positive, uh, almost to the point of making us uncomfortable because it almost seems like Cornelius, the, the Gentile pagan that he is, has earned God's attention. Look at uh, verse four where it says, your, pray, your prayers and your alms have ascended as a memorial before God. And so this angel speaks to Cornelius and says, what you really need more than anything is this guy, Peter. And the angel doesn't explain why. And Cornelius, to his credit, doesn't really need an explanation. So he just immediately dispatches three of the people that work for him and send them uh, down to Joppa to go get Peter. Joppa is about 37 miles away from Caesarea and his uh, runners go and get Peter within 21 hours. Uh, 37 miles, 21 hours, it's, it's a lot more running than I want to do. Uh, I only mention the speed to show that for Cornelius, he treats this as a military matter of life and death. This was the rate of pace you'd put people through if there was an invasion coming. And for Cornelius, he says, this is that important. We need to find out what Peter knows. And we need to find out right away. Uh, as a result of God's providence, the servants arrive at Joppa just at the right time, right as Peter's having this vision. And Peter's faced with this choice. What do I do with these Gentiles at my door? Will I announce them the gospel of grace? Or is this not for them? Now, I keep saying that Peter was in Joppa, like... I don't know, what's, what's important about that? In fact, uh, the word Joppa will be used 10 times in this chapter. Joppa, Joppa, Joppa. Why? Why is he talking about Joppa? Anyone know anything important about Joppa? It's only used four other times in the whole Bible, and three of them are pretty unimportant. Why does he keep bringing up Joppa? It's, it's rare that a, a biblical author will talk about a place this much, and they'll repeat the name over and over unless there's a reason. So what's the reason in this case? Well, the one time Joppa shows up in the Old Testament in a really important way is that it's the place that uh, Jonah goes to to try to get away from God and where Jonah makes the decision that the Gentiles at Nineveh should not hear and repent, that they don't deserve it, that they will always stay unclean. And it's in that same place, how many hundreds of years later, that Peter is going to have to make the same decision, his own Joppa decision. Do people who seem unclean to me uh, are they beyond the grace of God? Do, does God care about them? Are they important to him? Or are my prejudices right? The Ninevites shouldn't hear about God. The centurions shouldn't hear about God. They are not important to God because they're not important to me. Well, to Peter's credit, as he's pondering this vision, God hammers on him a second time and the spirit says to him, behold, these men are looking for you. Rise and go down and accompany them without hesitation for I have sent them. And Peter obeys and avoids the whale this time. He welcomes them as guests, and the next day he begins the trip to Caesarea. I like that Luke includes that it took 
takes Peter an extra day. Just a little shot that Peter's maybe not the runner that these other guys are. Um, they get to Cornelius, and his, in his enthusiasm, he's gathered full in his home all of his friends and family, and they want to hear what Peter has to say. In fact, in chapter 10, verse 28, it says, uh, Peter says, you yourselves know how unlawful it is for a Jew to associate with or visit anyone of another nation. But God has shown me that I should not call any person common or unclean. So when I was sent for, I came without objection. And I asked then why you sent for me. It's an interesting phrase. He says, he says, it's unlawful for me to be here. Well, it's not illegal in the Roman Empire. It's not illegal in the Old Testament. But it was uncultural which admittedly is not an English word, so I can't blame the translators for not using it. But it was a, a religious objection that people in Peter's generation had come up with. They'd said, it's better just to stay away from them, to just keep our distance, to be, uh, to use an American uh, anachronism, separate but equal, right? We, just, we better keep our distance just to be safe. They might infect us. And Peter has grown up with that mentality. Um, I had someone after the eight o'clock service say that uh, when he was growing up, uh, the phrase he would often hear is, I'm not a racist, but... And then someone would say a bunch of really racist stuff. <laughs> and, and that's how Peter, I think, was probably raised as well. He says, it's unlawful for me to be here. It's not against God's law, but it was certainly against the cultures and norms that he had grown up with. Now, Cornelius could not have been more enthusiastic. He tells Peter all about his own vision, and he finishes with this beautiful invitation in verse 33. He says, now, therefore, we are all here in the presence of God to hear all that you have been commanded by the Lord. Man, what a great opportunity to explain the gospel for Peter. Cornelius' heart couldn't be more soft to what God wants to say to him. And, and if we stop the passage here, just imagine the Bible just ended there, uh, this would be kind of like a pluralist's dream passage, right? We, we'd take away wrongfully, but we might take away, oh, you know, you know, look how many paths there are to God. Cornelius has his path to God, Peter has his path to God, or the gods, or a god, or whatever, and there's many paths up the mountain, and you just, you need to find what works for you. That'd be the, the, the wrong message that we'd take away from this passage. And even in Cornelius, in his virtue, uh, is going to have to cross the line of faith. In fact, um, later uh, in the chapter 11 version of, of Cornelius' vision, he says in verse 14, when talking about Peter, he will declare to you a message by which you will be saved, you and your household. Here's what I really want to get across. As good a guy as Cornelius was, he still needed to be saved. As good a people as you are, you and I still need to be saved. As good as sweet as your kids are, they need to be saved. As good as people out there are, they need to be saved, right? There are no unclean people and there are no clean people, right? And this is the paradox of this chapter that that I'm, I'm still wrestling with. Right? There, there are no unclean people that are unimportant to God or, or are beyond the capacity to respond to the gospel. And there are no clean people who do not need to respond to the gospel. Cornelius, even as a Roman, even as a centurion, even as a, a member of the uh, Gentile class, was capable of responding to the gospel. And, and conversely, even as someone who had given alms, who had prayed, whose heart was soft towards God, needed the gospel. Same thing's true for me and for you. As Peter uh, begins to explain these two truths, he talks about Jesus himself. He talks about Jesus' life and ministry, about Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection. He talks about uh, them being witnesses to his resurrection. And he talks about how they are now in the, 
entrusted with the same message we're entrusted with of announcing the gospel to the nations. Um, and it says in verse 36, uh, this is the New Living Translation, it says, this is the message of the good news for the people of Israel, that there is peace with God through Jesus Christ, who is Lord of all. This is the peace that, that Barb mentioned, that they extend through Horizon Pregnancy Clinic and, and that we get to participate in through what Christ has done for us on the cross. This is the hope that's available to you. And this is one of the ways that we, we think about how to apply this passage to our life. Maybe you're like Cornelius. Maybe you've tried to live a pretty good life and you've, you've tried to do good to people around you. And um, maybe you bear the weight or the stain of people calling you unclean or acting like you're less than or unimportant. And I hope that you hear from this passage that in no way does God see you as an unclean person beyond his care or his reach or his concern. And I also hope you hear from this passage, like Cornelius, you are in need of forgiveness for your sins, even as he was. In this beautiful paradox of the Christian gospel, you are both uh, not unclean and not clean at the same time. Right? That, like Cornelius, you need to respond to the offer of salvation through the person and work of Jesus Christ. As he says in verse 43, to, to him all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. And that's available to you and to me and all who would believe. And that because of that, there is unity possible through the gospel for, for all of us across the divisions that so quickly mark our own country's history as well as throughout the world today. Not just divisions of race, but divisions of class and caste, divisions of uh, political affiliation and cares and concerns. And it says in verse 44, while Peter was still saying these things, the Holy Spirit fell on all who heard the word. I love this because even before Peter gets a chance to make a mistake and get in the way, God invades. Right? The Spirit comes and dwells on them. In the same way he had at Pentecost on the Jewish Christians, in the same way in the Old Testament he dwelt in the temple, he now dwells on all who have heard the gospel message and believed in their hearts. Um, this is a divine vindication of Cornelius and his household's faith in Jesus Christ. And Peter rightly sees that he has no choice but to follow the leadership of God. In verse 47, he says, Can anyone withhold water for baptizing these people who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have? Peter rightly sees that his hands are tied by the action of God, right? There's no possible way that he can say, Well, God has accepted you, but I don't. You might be right with God, but you're not right with us. It is a foolish Christian or a foolish church that tries to say that sort of thing. Whoever is acceptable to God by logic must be acceptable to God's people if we're following in Christ's footsteps rather than walking out on our own. As the 5th century Turkish theologian John Chrysanthem said, God baptized them, not I. God baptized them. I, what choice did I have? And yet Peter realizes that this will be controversial. And he gets, as he gets back to Jerusalem, he realizes it is. In fact, even as he's seen God's spirit poured out, he's seen this amazing thing happen. He gets to Jerusalem and what's the response from a few curmudgeons there? Hey, we're mad at you. We heard you went into a Gentile's house. And it's like, talk about an adventure and missing the point, right? Uh, yeah, and the spirit of God came. Yeah, but where'd your shoes go? Like, it doesn't matter, right? <laughs> this, is, this is every youth pastor's theme verse, right? Like, <laughs> it's amazing. We had 18 kids come to the Christ at camp. Yeah, but there's gum in the, sh in the van. I don't care if there's gum in the van, right? It doesn't matter. 
But it doesn't stop people from criticizing him, right? Peter uh, returns to these complaints uh, that he went into Cornelius' home, but I, I do want to end on a note of hope here that even these curmudgeons, when they hear what had happened, they hear God's work, they glorified God too in verse 18, saying, then to the Gentiles also, God has granted repentance that leads to life. Now, I said, there's a, there's a lot more in this chapter that we didn't get to, and, and we're out of time, so we've we got to wrap it up here. Uh, there's a lot about what does it mean for us to listen to God's voice today? What does it mean to sort of attend to how God might speak to us that, that we'll have to save for another time, but if you want to talk after the service, I'd love to talk with you about it. Um, but I really want you to notice this. This is not a passage about God's opinion shifting. This is, this is not God changing his mind on people. This is a passage about Peter being convicted of his own prejudice, of his own sin, and of God condescending to, to Peter's weaknesses and convicting him of those things or revealing those things to him so that the gospel would continue to spread to the nations. And because of that, we can look at it from the lens of Peter and see what can we learn as well. There's a, a beauty in seeing God's image in others, but it's a long journey. It was a long journey for Peter and it is for us as well. So a couple questions for you to pray, on, pray about and reflect on. If you had been Peter in Joppa um, and you had to make this decision, do I go or do I stay? Do they deserve to hear the gospel or not? Who are the they that, that God's spirit sort of brings up to your mind? For your own life experience, your own culture, your own uh, prejudices, who are the they that it's hard for you to think about bringing the gospel to? Uh, I, I'll just leave it there. Who, who are the they? And then um, the other question I really want you to ask is, if the gospel really is good news for all people, what would it take for you to take actionable steps to go towards the they? You know, I, here's, here's what I mean. I think it's tempting for me, at least, to say, well, I would have gone. I mean, gosh, if I had a vision and then it was repeated three times and then God audibly spoke to me and then people showed up at my front door, I, I would definitely go tell them about Jesus, right? But until those things happen, I'm just going to sit on my hands. <laughs> All right, well, I guess you get partial credit for that, but it's easy to give ourselves the benefit of the doubt and say, well, I would, I just haven't. I, you know, I could, but I haven't. I, I might, but I haven't, right? So, so what would it take for you to, to just dream with God to move forward towards people that uh, it's easy for you to categorize as unclean rather than some people that God would care about? All right, well, I'm really grateful for the ways that you as a church have shown so much grace and so much initiative towards moving towards people uh, and moving towards one another in unity. And I hope that this passage gives you a lot of joy and hope in believing that, that your Christian faith is a part of the solution that, that we face as a country and as a world on these issues of division. Um, it doesn't mean that we're perfect. Peter wasn't perfect. I, I hope that you hear in this, there's a lot of grace for continued sanctification in this process and a need for that, but also hope that, that God's spirit is behind that in ways that are really exciting and encouraging. Let's close our time in prayer. <coughs> God, I'm grateful for Peter and his example in this. I, I know so often Peter is kind of a, a whipping boy for being hard-headed, uh, but it's so encouraging to see his, his soft heart to repent here as well. And in that, God, I desire that that would be my heart and that would be our heart as a church. Not that we would ignore the things that um, people have said or done in your name that maybe we've said or done that would embarrass us if they came out now on issues of race and racism and prejudice, um, but that we would move towards one another with joy and delight in believing, knowing that you care 
about every person we'll come in contact with this week. God, I, uh, I know race is a tricky topic to talk about. It's an easy topic to get sideways and to, to be discouraged about or to, to not believe the best in others. God, I pray that we would listen to your word with a soft heart. Um, God, anything I've said that's foolish or, or offensive, I, I pray would, would melt away and that we would hear your voice uh, through this time. In Christ's name we pray, amen.